Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Horner Cruise Consulting, and my very special guest is Vincent Turner of Uno Home Loans. Welcome, Vincent. Thank you for having me. It's glorious to be here. <laughs> you, you, it doesn't matter what you say with that charming Australian accent. It's like I love. I just enjoy talking to you. I, I miss it. I was in San Francisco for five years, and I, I, I didn't realize how much of an asset it was until I got back to Australia and went, oh, I don't have that anymore. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Probably especially with the ladies. Uh, well, hey, man, so thanks for being on the podcast. As we were talking before we turned the mic on, I love fintech. I'm super excited yep. to have you. You've built – you have a really interesting story. Maybe walk people through how you got going. But your transition from San Francisco startup to Australian startup yep. is fascinating. Yeah. Well, it's actually – it starts even a little bit before that. It was uh, Australian startup initially. Uh, first tech boom, early 20s developed some messaging tech, ended up uh, licensing that to a couple of the big banks here. And then the tech wreck hit and we found ourselves with plenty of cash. We'd raised money and um, capability, but literally no market. Uh, so what we decided to do was to go into mortgage software and we built a platform that one of the big banks here deployed replacing paper applications. Uh, over the next three or four years, we managed to grow that to being one of the two platforms in the marketplace. It was a duopoly and raised more capital, bought out our first investors, and then the GFC hit. And we actually realized we had timed going into software two years before the tech bubble burst, and then moving into mortgage software two years before subprime meltdown, and found ourselves picking up the pieces of that. And so I ended up, you know, in my late 20s, thinking, okay, I've done nine years in this software company. I've virtually owned very little of it now because we've been deluded so much. So I'm out. I'm out. I'm going to leave Sydney. I'm going to leave finance. I'm going to leave tech. I went back to Perth. I hung out with my parents. And then I met some. Uh, I met someone who was in a VC between Sydney and, and uh, San Francisco, and she said, "You know what? You you got to go and play in the majors. You actually need to go back to San Francisco." And so I landed in San Francisco late 2010, knowing no one, like zero people other than her, and she wasn't there, in, uh, you know, half the time, uh, and started this idea of, well, you know what? What's the trend that we need to look for? Uh, and the idea for Planwise, which was the San Francisco company that I ran for the last five years uh, up to the end of 2015. Uh, was this idea that people uh, need to make better financial decisions and that the banks won't be able to build the stuff. In fact, they won't be incentivized either. And the regulators are going to want it, but they're not going to know how to build it. So there'd be an opportunity for technology to change the relationship that consumers would have with their money. And that Mint was sort of the 1.0 of that. And there was going to be a, a slew of personal finance technology. Uh, and we wanted to bring that to market. So that, that was plan-wise. And that was fun. And, you know, we raised venture capital and some of that was from Australia. Some of that was from the US. It was like ultra cliche. Late 2010, you know, Uber and Airbnb and these companies were starting to get going and the kind of angel list and Y Combinator. And this was all just starting to really, really come to the fore. And I was a junkie. Like I was going three nights a week to meetups and just like, you know, drinking from the Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> and fintech wasn't a thing either. You know, fintech was not a thing yet. And uh, in 2012, we'd been running for about a year and a half, and I'd gone through my second co-founder, which is a story we can tell later. And I was like, you know what, this is driving me bananas. And so I started a fintech meetup because I was like, you know what, there's that's right. There I forgot financial... about that. Yeah. 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 So no, keep that was, going that was though. The... So you did the fintech yeah. meetup. Well, the fintech meetup was perfectly timed. It was like I went. I remember trying to. I pitched a VC conference, and I said to them, "Can I come and talk to your conference about the opportunities in financial services?" And this is in 2012. And their response was basically, ah, it's highly regulated, it's boring, there isn't opportunities there. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Financial services, biggest industry in the world before software took it over. And it's built on 40-year-old technology and every person in the world uses a device connected to their money every single day. How is this not an opportunity? 
Uh, and so 2012 in March, we started that fintech meetup. And I was doing this in parallel with PlanWise. I think about 25 people turned up and about half of them wanted me to give them a hand with their Google checkout. Like that was what they thought fintech was. Uh, but we grew it. We grew it slowly and steadily and then it ended up becoming like 4,000. By the end of 2015, when I left San Francisco, it was 4,000 members. It was every, you know, every month, 150 to 200 people. We had like amazing people come and talk at it. Uh, and it was awesome. It was a really good transformational thing. It was great to be part of it. And it was a member community. And I just hosted it. I got lucky in some respects. Um, but by the same token, I got to interview and meet the CEOs of just about all of the best fintech companies in the valley and some even out of the valley and there was some really regular themes with these companies and you know it was in sort of 2015 kind of the start of it I was like you know what we are a tech company that is trying to sell our wares to the financial services industry and what we need to be is a financial services company that's leveraging our tech and that transformational rethink of our company was like ah we're in the wrong business um, and at that time we would we our plan wise had morphed into a tool to help people making the decision to buy a home and we'd got into the real estate accelerator that the NAR run the um, the National Association of Realtors and we had all these mortgage brokers and real estate agents who loved the idea of it but just wouldn't deploy it they wouldn't give it to their customer they just they just wanted to sell homes or sell mortgages you know I love so that I love yeah. the your comment about instead of trying to sell technology let's just leverage it and you know, yeah. in, in a very small way, that's what we do at Cruise Consulting. We know the best software stack for all the startups. We put right. them on that, and you just you just crush it, you know. And you guys are. I want to hear more about your model, but like you, you, it sounds like you guys have executed that. But you built the technology yourself, which is even better. But like yeah. you're just think, you're just making it easier for everyone to to do what they need to do. Yeah, and I think this is the challenge: is that people, the re, most retail banks, haven't realized that the customer experience is now core to their existence, right? Customers want, and it's, think about Amazon, right? It's convenience and price. And financial services is a digital uh, product. So the product can be shipped anywhere instantly. And it, it's an enabler. You don't, you know, no, you don't, no one, not too many people have an aesthetic love of their blender or, the, you know, their sunscreen. They need it because they want to go and create a smoothie or go out in the sun. And I think there's some similarities in finance. No, one, no one's like, oh, you know what? I have the best personal loan. You're going to love this personal loan. I'm so happy with it. It's, it's cheap and it was really easy to get it. And when you think about technology and suddenly everyone's got a mobile phone in their hand or they're at their computer eight hours a day. Um, and I think desktop, by the way, is massively overlooked. Everyone seems to be mobile, mobile, mobile. We can talk about that later. Um, but you, this is what we realized is that we're trying to build this tech and sell this tech to banks and convince them that they've got to go down this journey. And what we realized is that if we can get the ability to sell the financial services product ourselves, we, why, would we, why would we sell it? We're selling, we're giving away the farm, you know? And so our investors out of Australia, like, well, if you're going to do that, you know, if you're going to go into mortgages, which was sort of our heritage in Australia, and we sort of landed back in property in the U.S., why would you do that in the U.S.? Why don't you come and do that in Australia? You know everyone here. You know you got better connections. I'm like, all right. Well, that's so. Let's I want let's continue on that. But for one second, I think your point about like how the customer experience is, is really all that matters is so right mm -hmm. on because in you know when banking went online, everything got abstracted. 
and all right. I ever interact with, I occasionally go to the branch, but like all I really interact with is Wells Fargo's website and Charles Schwab's yeah. website. I don't even want to talk to anyone there. And so yeah. that abstraction started and now the consumer's hooked and now yep. the consumer's looking for better and better ways to do it. And the one big advantage like the retail banks have is they have this super ultra low cost of capital because right. they have deposits. And so they yep. whatever loans they make has a zero cost basis basically. And so yep. the, every, and everyone has the same zero cost basis because the world is flooded with deposits. And right. so now all of a sudden it's just like the only thing you can compete on is your user experience. Yeah, I think there is there is still plenty of pockets in um, financial services for places where there's still massive margins being created. And I think you've seen in payday lending like – That's actually a big you know, margin Google, though. If you're lending at 4 or 5% and you have a zero cost of funds, that's actually oh, yeah. incredibly oh, lucrative. Especially when you've, you're Citibank and you've got 200 million customers. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, but keep going, um, keep going. This is this opportunity in financial services. If you think, okay, well, I don't have a branch network, and I, you know, I can get directly to the customer through their mobile phone. I have to be creative in how I acquire that customer digitally, but that's a whole other story. But then, you know, the, there's particular products and particular segments that are starting to be cherry picked, and this is this is the start of this kind of movement towards, you know, better pricing for risk for the particular consumer you're talking about. And so far, I've executed this really, really well. I think. Um, they've realized if you're at the top 25 college, you're not, they're not the same risk as the guy at the community college in the back of Antonio, like not to pick on Antonio. And that has to be priced differently. And they don't, they don't mind that people are you know, making more money getting the loan to the guy in Antonio. They're saying if you're the guy at Stanford, you shouldn't be paying the same as that guy because you're just not the same risk. And you know, there's a whole bunch of socioeconomic um, impacts of all of this as well, which we would probably spend the entire podcast on if we wanted to. Um, but though, from a from a risk pricing perspective, efficient markets work when people pay uh, commensurate with the risk that that they present or that their security presents or whatever it is they're doing, and that's the opportunity in financial services. And one of the one of the worst things I've seen ba- major banks do is they say, "Oh, there's no op- revenue opportunities in retail banking. You know, these customers only spend two hundred and fifty dollars a year with us, and that's all the fees that we you know get from them." And I'm like. Facebook has 5,000 employees and has 1.4 billion users. You're Citibank, and you have hundreds of thousands of employees for 100 million users. Like, you clearly got the economics wrong. Well, there's, and you're totally right. There's one thing that, going back to that SoFi example, yeah. It's there is a lot of like a lot of the value they create and a lot of the kind of opportunity they recognize was that different kind of underwriting style and different pricing. But I think. And by the way, full disclosure, I'm in a late stage investor in SoFi, so like I want to see them do well. I love the people there; yep. they're awesome. Yep. Uh, I own so little of the company that it doesn't matter. You know, that, that, believe me, Mike Cagney is not worried about what I think. Um, but <laughs> what what it also does is it it actually helps their customer acquisition because they can tell a very specific story, and right. they can find people who went to, the people who went to Stanford like being part of the club, and the people who right. went to Berkeley like being part of the club. And and what you see from right. SoFi is they, they basically – it's like an affinity channel and they yep. move down the stack. And actually that affinity channel or affinity group is is actually their secret sauce on marketing too. It's actually like a double strength. It's it's a really amazing kind of insight they had. Yeah. And look, I think they, they started with the kernel of you know great financial services begins with a great product. 
right? And that product has to solve for one or more of three things. And, and this is in mortgages, which we're in, but it's in everything as well. It either has to be at a really great price point for the person relative to what they would be getting otherwise. The service proposition has to be really good so they can get it really, really easily. Or it has to be available to them given that their risk criteria where they don't think they're risky, but other people do. Yeah, no, so, you nailed it. That's the, that's the best one right there. Yeah. And they hammered that. They got that so right, you know. And so it was priced well. It was delivered really well. And, you know, it met a, a risk profile that, that people that was, you know, misunderstood in the marketplace. And so I think they started with that. But, I mean, I've got, you know, I mean, we had SoFi come and talk at the meetup. And one of my friends set up their New York office. Uh, and these guys are really good at marketing as well. And I think the, ch the challenge facing anyone who's trying to create a financial services company competing with these incumbents is that how do you build a brand that consumers are going to trust with a particular set of people? And that stuff is expensive. And this is, I think, this is the learning that I had from interviewing these CEOs of these fintech companies. None of them took the kind of traditional San Francisco uh, early stage company where you've got two guys in a garage and they tinker along with some of their own money that they've saved up and then they release a beta and then that goes reasonably well so they go into an accelerator and they get sort of half a million bucks at the end of it you know and then they tinker along and they get some more traction and they start to introduce a business model and then you know they do a larger seed round for one and a half and then maybe two and a half years later they, they go into a series a for you know three to six million or whatever so fine the case of you know, Ernest, these guys they started off the straight out of the gates with you know five million dollar seed rounds because they're like we have to be licensed we need great product we need great engineering great customer service and we need great brands and digital marketing and we need all of that right up front and we won't be launching for six months and then we'll need enough runway to have enough traction you know so that we don't have to raise again for another six to twelve months after that well, That's they also had to fund their loan portfolio, and you could only get a too. credit line from someone like who I used to be at Lighthouse with, you know, they're not yep. going to advance the whole loan loan portfolio. They're going to advance no. 50 to 80% of it, and so you got to fund, yeah. you know. But you also mentioned the compliance. Like, that is a real cost. I'm actually friends. Beth Stevens is a good friend of mine. She was uh, head of compliance, I think head of operations at Ernest for basically the yep. whole way up to recently. And yep. Beth is just like one of the best lawyers in the Valley, but like Beth is expensive. She had a huge team of lawyers and that's at Ernest, which is still like a series C company, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean that, and I think that the, there's two parts There's the actual cost of the compliance and there's the cost of maintaining your entire team until you're compliant. Right. <laughs> and, and you can't go and you can't start the compliance process and they'll say, Hey, have you got the IT process and policies and all this? You're going to have all that stuff just sitting there waiting. So this is this is this is barrier to market, but once you break through that membrane, which you obviously these companies all have, and you know to a degree, has starting to do that down in Australia, you, you you the upside is is amazing with these businesses, you know, and the trajectory of these businesses is amazing. Well, also your cost of capital. I want let's talk about Uno, and then we can layer in the cost of capital because. I, at Lighthouse, I backed a bunch of these online lending companies in 2010, which I can't believe yep. I didn't know you back then. Um, yep. But what we would see is their cost of capital would staircase down away from us. Like we were a high cost lender and then they right. make it to a bank and make it to a special purpose vehicle. And all of a sudden yep. they were borrowing at 5% instead of borrowing at 12%, which is yep. just part of the life cycle. But that's actually yep. a huge improvement in economics really makes a lot of difference for them. So I was just going to say, and what they're doing is painting it forward. They're saying, look, at scale, we're going to both have economies in our you customer acquisition and our service proposition, and our cost of capital is going to go from, you said, from 12 to 5%, and suddenly you're sitting on a 70% you know, gross margin business, 
and, and those numbers stack up really well because what you tend to find as well is that the uh, large incumbents are incredibly removed from their digital customer acquisition uh, and in doing so their cost of customer acquisition digitally is it's it really is like if you go and look at Google's annual report and oh, they yeah, give you they a breakdown so much money on Google it's crazy but you look at Google's annual report back the other way the three biggest keywords are personal loans insurance and uh, mortgages or something else. It's basically three, the three most expensive places to buy keywords in Google are on those three words. My buddy used to run the, the finance vertical at Google and right. uh, his advice was don't use Google to advertise unless you're willing to really pay up. Like it's, it's really yeah. expensive. Well, you can and we're finding we've been, we've been using Google for the last sort of nine months here, you know, and in Australia, and you can, you just have to get super creative with what you're paying for and what you're doing with a customer who arrives at your site. Um, Talk about Uno so that everyone knows kind of what you're talking about and, and your brilliant master stroke that allowed you to just crush it when you went down to Australia. Um, yeah, I think they, they say the secret, uh, you know, is to you can either be in the right place at the right time. Or you can be in the right place and just hang around for a while, I think is the, is the same. And then the right time comes around. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, right? If you, as long as you sort of just hang around in the right place. Um, so I, I was, the company I did in Australia previously was mortgage software, and it basically replaced paper applications, which meant I'd integrated mortgages from the mortgage brokers to the banks with every major bank in Australia. And quite visibly, people knew I was the guy who had done that. Our company did it first, and there ended up being two companies and so I had enough of a relationship base in Australia. And then also the kind of narrative around Silicon Valley, which was, hey, he went to the valley and was there when these kind of brands were getting started and started this fintech meetup and when fintech was getting started. And there was just this sort of wonderful narrative that played into a dialogue that happened with one of the major banks back here in mid-2015. Uh, Westpac's the name of that bank. And Westpac was the first bank in Australia of the big four, which is sort of like the, you know, the major ones in the U.S., to set up a VC fund, and they didn't set it up themselves. They set it up, they funded, or they were the only LP to another fund external that had its own mandate, basically. Ah, so it's not. So they're a big they're LP West, in that fund. They are the only LP in that fund. And the point of that fund is to go and invest in stuff that may be competitive with Westpac, but at least Westpac gets to see it, and they get to know what's happening, and they get to give those companies an unfair advantage. But it's not designed to invest in the stuff that Westpac might want to have adjacent to its business. And they think about the market in terms of sustaining innovations, the stuff we need to do better as a bank. The kind of, you know, hit for the fences stuff goes through our VC firm. But the stuff that's sort of adjacent to us, which is we're not in it today or we're in it and we should be in it more and it's going to evolve because of digital. And mortgage broking was one of those things. And so if you think about banks... Um, and, and mortgages, they either have a manufacturer mortgage and they either distribute it through a retail channel, being their branches or their online, or they distribute it through mortgage brokers. And in Australia, mortgage broking is, is the dominant way to get a mortgage. It's like 53, 54% of the market and it continues to grow every year. Why, why and, is it, why are brokers so, is it because they can offer multiple products and people can compare? Yeah, look, I think, so there's a couple of things. In the US, you think of a mortgage as simply the mechanism to get you money and after three months you might be getting they might sell that mortgage and you might start getting a statement from someone else and you're like yeah all right cool whatever in australia that's not how you think about it you like so you get your mortgage and you get it with a particular bank and you think right well i'm in business with that bank now and they offer you other banking services it's like the linchpin to a banking relationship and so there's this kind of 
the symbiotic relationship slash vicious cycle that the brokers introduced this branded product. The banks used that branded product to build out a pretty sticky banking relationship with the mortgage at its core. Mortgages in Australia are reasonably high margin compared to the rest of the world, a couple of percent. And so, but the the brokers are also selling the brand of the bank. You know, it's easier for a broker to sell a large bank branded product than, hey, there's this other one you've never heard of. Their conversion is um, way higher. Yeah, that makes sense. It's just easier. It's just easy to say, hey, you've heard of Wells, you know. Does the broker get a second shot at that client a couple years later or is that like a US thing? Yeah, so this is, this is where the Australian model is different to everywhere else in the world, actually. The broker gets paid up front and ongoing. Ah, and, so they have some skin in the game so, so people won't refinance. Well, you'd think so, but if they, they're getting 65 basis points up front, so 6,500 on a million dollars worth of mortgage, and about 2%, you know, so 20 basis points uh, every year, so another 2,000 on that million dollars, which is awesome, but if you think about that over a four-year period, 80% of what they're going to earn they earn in the first two years, so after two years, they're like, yeah, we could probably find you something better. <laughs> That's awesome. And look, I... I the, honestly, the best brokers in Australia are not there to churn their customer, but as an industry, you've got to think, well, the incentives are aligned to... You know, yeah, it's also just the direction of interest rates. I mean, that's why so much churn happens right now, or last 10 years or whatever, because interest rates have been going down. When interest rates go up, it won't be as... It won't happen as much. Yeah, I, I mean, you'll see. I mean, because... I, I don't know. Anyway, the picking interest rates is, is a tough one. I've actually just done a blog post on where I think interest rates are going, so I'm breaking my own rules, but... Uh, yeah. Anyway, so the, the point with Westpac was there is a company that had a manufacturer's mortgage, the second you know, largest uh, bank in Australia, uh, so you know, $100 billion organization. They have a retail network. They do not own any of the distribution on mortgage broking side. And there is a flow from banks to brokers of $2.2 billion every year. So they look at that market and go, we're not taking part in that revenue pool. We pay out, but we don't get to get in. And our options are either to invest, to try and find a company that's going and transform it digitally or find an entrepreneur who knows how to execute a digital strategy and back him to the hilt uh, or him or her to the hilt. And so that's where I, I landed in the lap of that you know, strategy that they had and we were going to go to market anyway. And they said, why don't we bring this thing together? And Westpac was the first bank I'd sold that messaging stuff to back in 2001. So I had a long history with the bank. Um, and culturally, it was right aligned. And so they they got that we needed to write a decent check up front. Those checks I spoke about before where you can't do half a million dollars. I'm like, I need to hire a team of 25 people and we need to do this properly. And the bank gets that. They don't fund you know half a million dollar IT projects in the bank. They go, it's going to take X million dollars over you know Y years. And they think about the funding requirement for, the, for this business the same way. And so you, I've ended up in this wonderful situation which people continually raise their eyebrow at and go, how the hell did you do that? Well, how did that happen? Because I don't know that I did it, which is we got funded like a company might have looked like in the early 2000s where someone wrote you a large check off the back of a PowerPoint. On an idea, yeah, yeah. And But in fairness to the idea, I had a great core team assembled all in Australia who had really deep experience in the areas that we needed. I'd already built the technology. We had two years worth of the build that had happened in PlanWise and we brought all that IP back. So we hit the ground running. Um, we launched in the middle of the year and basically we launched Australia's first what we call digital mortgage service. And you can think about it a bit like an online mortgage broker. Basically, we, we are not the lender and the consumer deals with us digitally so they can deal with us through a platform over the phone, on chat, over video. They never have to come and see us. We never have to go and see them. And that technology basically is used to power both the customer experience and the service people who we employ. There's no commissions. There's no kind of heavy sales kind of tactics. 
And the, the more we build the platform, we release it every two weeks, it digitizes the process that makes it easier and easier for the consumer to get access to all the lenders we deal with. So are you, you can actually measure that and you're probably looking at like your timelines for new borrowers and like you can see all this compressing probably in real time. Uh, it, like massively. We actually did an update two weeks ago and two days after that update, we were seeing people come in in the morning, play around and sign up, you know, within a couple of minutes and then go through this kind of onboarding to I want to apply for this particular product about an hour or so later and then be giving us documents an hour or so after that. And they could do it. They could do it faster and be talking to us and be have a credit proposal in their hand in a couple of hours. And the actual amount of effort that they've got is literally only measured in you know tens of minutes. Um, but people are getting from discovery to application. Um, in the morning, you wow. know, and a Saturday morning as well. Amazing, yeah. amazing! Congratulations, and man! It, I mean, it's it's such a testament to how hard you worked on Plan Wise, and just like you said, being like having your it wasn't just you were in the right place. You had your eyes open, and you're willing to pivot, and you and you saw the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely, and yeah, and a little bit of luck. I think everyone who's got anywhere, especially in startup, has had a bit of luck in terms of timing. But you know, it's sometimes you sort of see the you know I think that 2004 commencement speech by Steve Jobs about it's hard to connect the dots looking forward is is never a truer word like yeah i totally agree with that i always tell people <laughs> actually i see a lot of entrepreneurs get really stressed out because uh, we work with so many that'll yep. th- they they think they'll look at someone like you they don't know you like in this way and they'll just think you had the brilliant idea one day to build a digital mortgage servicing company and it just happened yep. or mark zuckerberg just had this idea to build facebook in this current incarnation and it stresses right. them out because they're not having that same there's no the they don't know that the plan always is changing and you're going to eventually hit the right plan and then when you tell the story five years later it's going to be all tied up in a neat bow they don't know that you know (laughs) and so like Uh, i'm always encouraging i'm like look it's hard and you figure it out along the way and everyone's faking it you know that's just how it is that's how life is well i mean i wrote a, a blog post which you can link to people uh it's on my like in 2013 it was a speech i gave at the fintech meetup we were short a speaker one week and I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll give a talk to my own meetup. Um, it was the only time I ever did it. And it was called From Guns to Funds. And it, was, it mapped the first 18 months of PlanWise. And I mean, I had a tech co-founder the first you know, couple of months that I landed. He pulled out seven weeks before we were due to get on stage in New York to present our stuff. I managed to blag our way into Finnovate. I didn't tell them. I just said, yeah, no, everything's totally fine. Everything's totally fine. No, I'm, yeah, I'm in Bulgaria. Some investors who were going to invest money. And it was a guy who I'd met at a bar in Banff like five years prior. I said, yeah, I'll give you 20 grand. It sounds like a good idea. I like it. He put planwise.com, the, the domain, on his credit card and said, I'll wire you the rest of the money. I got on a plane with the last money I had and flew to Bulgaria because I didn't have any engineers. He's like, oh, we got engineers in Bulgaria. In the weekend that I flew to Bulgaria, we had um, the, uh, that st- the t- correction that happened in 2012. Oh, the stock, stock market correction? Yeah, like a stock market correction. And so by the time I got off the plane in Bulgaria, it's like, oh, we're pretty spooked. We're not going to invest anymore, but we've paid your first week's accommodation. I'm like, so I've got no co-founder, no product, no money, no return ticket, and I've got accommodation for four more days. And my landlord is a gun-toting Bulgarian six-foot-five ex-mercenary who I went to pay, I managed to get another hundred bucks from my parents, I think, because it was my birthday. That was my birthday that week. Um, <laughs> and my parents wired me some money for my birthday. Like, I can't tell them what's going on. And I used that money to go and pay my landlord, who was next door to me. And I walk in there, and 
he's like a huge this guy used to be a mercenary in africa right in the 70s or something and he has this white singlet on and these blue shorts like traditional eastern european kind of old guy thing going on and he sits me down in this low chair and he's in a big wooden table that's sort yeah. of much higher than looking me, down on you thing, yeah right? that's yeah awesome. and then he just whips out this magnum just pulls a huge magnum out and sticks it on the table and starts stroking the barrel of this gun <laughs> and he's like i want you to know what happens if you run away without paying me i'm like dude i've got your money right here <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and i walk into the, the office the next day and the bulgarians developers i'm like yeah this happened like yeah welcome to bulgaria yeah totally you know? oh. so what did you so, do how'd you get how'd you get out of that so i rang up another guy i met at a festival in perth just before i went to the u.s who was in the u.s previously and loved it and was sort of living vicariously through me i was like dude i just need 14 grand i need it to pay these engineers and to pay the entry fee to finnovate and then i'll if i can get to finnovate i'll do it if i can't get to finnovate i'll, I'll throw it in the towel and i'll come back to perth and i'll pay your money back and he's like all right so he wired me 14 grand that got us to finnovate when i got to finnovate and we presented at finnovate the guy who was supposed to give me the 20 went yeah all right you, you pulled that out like you're obviously pretty plucky i'll give you the rest of the money and then we, we sort of went from there. So yeah, any, any entrepreneur who's thinking, oh, you know what, you get to look at this thing and you look at it when the people start writing about it because the numbers become large, there's always a, there's always a backstory. I it's totally always. agree. Lived it with Cruise Consulting, and the story yeah. we tell now is very different than who we were. You know, and Vanessa bootstrap Cruise Consulting forever, so that's yeah. You know, um, so talk that. talk, and, and we probably got you know five more minutes here. Like, where's okay. Uno going? What do you? What's the next on the roadmap? And yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Australian fintech scene. Like, what's going on down there? Yeah, that's. Uh, so I'll start with you know just to give you one minute on it. We basically launched last year, and this year we are we have to become a real company. You know, really, what that means is how do we grow? How do we make sure that more people find out about this thing, and more people use it, and that they love it, and they tell more people about it? And you know, that basically means doing about four to five x on the numbers we were doing at the end of last year by sort of October this year. And I mean, we're on track to do it already. We've already hit January numbers and we've got a whole lot of marketing that's starting to ramp up. Um, and you know, our digital spend is probably is the largest line item in our entire thing. And we're spending a lot of money on marketing. Um, and I think that's the reality of building a digital business. Um, and the other reality is you have to convince people that just because it's digital doesn't mean it's not high service. People tend to think if it's online, I have to do it myself. Um, and so we're having to educate people around that. But yeah, I'm super excited for you know, we're just gonna focus on Australia. You know, we're obviously interested in where our tech can go after that, but you know, just great group of people and we'll just keep our head down and keep uh, doing it. I love it. Um, so exciting. So exciting. Yep. Super, super exciting. Um, in terms of fintech in Australia, this is the surprising thing. So um, having run the fintech networking group or fintech meetup in San Francisco, when I got back to Sydney, I was pretty pleasantly surprised that there is, an, is a great fintech scene, especially for early stage fintech uh, in Sydney and Australia generally, but very much Sydney, in so far as that there is three fintech accelerators um all of the major banks are, are at least across it if not pretty highly engaged there's engagement from state and federal government there is a fintech sandbox that enables you to go and do stuff without having to be fully regulated in particular verticals to make it easier to come to market and the reason is it's not because the tech scene's so good there is a reasonable tech scene in sydney um, and Melbourne as well, actually, to be fair. I think a lot of the tech companies in the US now are thinking Melbourne over Sydney, and they both have their advantages. It's There's a really good financial services system. It, the retail financial services in Australia, it, excuse my language, shits all over you know, the US. 
at the Empire Startups Conference last year, MasterCard came out and said we are getting 70% adoption for PayWave with MasterCard. So people who have, and they only got that tech 12 months ago. Everyone taps and goes now. There is no put it in signature. Really? Oh my them. God, that's so much better. It's so much better, all right? And they're, doing, they're about to release uh, later this year, October, they're releasing real-time transfers between banks. No, it's no third-party provider. It's just put in someone's details, their email or their Twitter or whatever, and then real-time send the money, and it clears real-time. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, so it's, it's a good it, thing. The ACH system in the United States is just archaic. It's crazy. I don't even... Yeah. can't even deal with it. I, mean, um, I hope Tawala sorts that out. Yeah, I like Tawala, too. Stripe ACH is supposedly pretty good, too. Um, yeah. So, dude, I, I, uh, I'm just really happy for you, man. And you're, you totally Thanks. know. The, the exciting thing is you know your industry is so cold and you just found the points that just need help. And it wasn't like – I also just like your attitude of like it's not a uh, we're coming to conquer, we're going to kill everybody and rule the – you know, it's like, hey, it's a very modest but very effective pitch and you know what you're improving and you know who your constituents are. It's really powerful. Yeah, thanks. I think – look, we're, we're big – uh, I think our role is to like lead the industry, but help move the industry forward. And you know, ultimately, and I said this before, with most financial services products, trust is the baseline, right? You, unless people trust you, they won't do business with you because it's their money. But once you get through that trust barrier, people want the best experience in getting the product or dealing with the service provider at the lowest cost. And that's that's it. It's it's a really simple value proposition, and we've done so we've done quant surveys and qual surveys and interviews and everything. And everyone just says, "I want the best deal, and I want the experience to be good and the service proposition to be good." Great, just do that. Do that stuff really well. Forget about you know trying to paint the picture and do other stuff. Just just focus on those two things. And the beauty of it is, software is really good for that. You can make really great software and bring the cost down like crazy, and everyone will be happy. Yeah. And look, one thing I will add to that though is that the software is great for building the consumer interaction, but you also need to build great software so that when people do need to talk to someone, that that person looks like a rock star. And one of our goals that you know is we're not only building a great customer experience for what you need to interact with as a customer, the stuff that's easier to deal with on the phone and talk about on the phone because it's emotive or it has a, you know, it's, it's kind, of, kind of can be complex or quite subjective. Um, we build tools in the background that mean that our people can have a great, meaningful, informed conversation with you very quickly and don't have to go, eh, I'm going to have to run some numbers and call you back. You know, and so that's, so that's the other half of it. Are you guys yep. building that like on Salesforce or some other tool or what do you, is it from scratch? Yeah, the core capability to have conversations is rooted in building out financial calculations. And really, that was the heritage at PlanWise. It's been the heritage at the mortgage software. That's why we're completely vertically integrated. We don't rely on any third-party software. We will roll out a CRM at some point to help us with task automation. But outside of that, we run everything on Amazon. We run it locally in Sydney. Uh, and the core technology stack is stuff we build ourselves with 15 years of experience of how to build this. And uh, we learn as we go. I love it. Uh, Uno Home Loans, Vincent Turner. Maybe you can tell everyone where they can find you. Yeah, you can find us at uno.loans if you want to be progressive or unohomeloans.com.au. That also works. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. You're a, such a pleasure. The charming accent doesn't hurt. And uh, <laughs> I'm really happy for your success. Thanks a lot, Scott. All right, bye. Take care.